Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, I'm Charles Kirsch, and welcome to the second episode of my new podcast, Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a new podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I'm honored to be joined by our guest, Ken Bloom. Ken is the author of many books about Broadway, including his widely acclaimed show and tell, and many encyclopedias such as American Song, Parts 1 and 2, and the Broadway Encyclopedia. Ken is a Grammy Award winner, a radio host, one of the creators of Harbinger Records, and the producer and writer of several reviews with Barry Kleinbart. Ken, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. So let's start at the beginning. What was the first show you saw? I'm, I don't, I'm not really sure, but I, it's either The Road Company of My Fair Lady or Gertrude Berg in Dear Me the Sky is Falling or The Third Man Road Company. I don't, I, I'd have to look and see what dates they were, but those were the first three I saw. Well, we know about My Fair Lady and The Third Man, but tell us about Gertrude Berg's play. Gertrude Berg was, uh, she played a character called Molly Goldberg on TV and radio for years. And she was a very smart woman. She produced her own show and she also wrote all the scripts. And her, her shows were extremely popular. And she wrote a number of plays for Broadway and was very successful. And, you know, it was sort of your typical family comedy of the time. Very entertaining, didn't have any message, you know, and for the Jewish audiences, uh, they all ran to see this show. They really supported it. And she had a lot of non-Jewish uh, fans also, so that helped also. What were some of the records you owned at home? And were 78 discs till I was like 18. And, uh, we had, I had a bunch of Al Jolson 78s and the soundtrack to Hans Christian Andersen with Danny Kaye for some reason. And I can't remember any of the others, but you know, I kept wanting to, you know, have an LP. And when Corvettes, I don't know if you heard of Corvettes, but it was sort of like a Walmart, but a higher class, I guess, big department store of a middle level. When they opened in Washington, they had a fantastic record department and great sales. And because all of this, I was holding inside for so long, the dam burst. And, you know, I just went to Corvettes and I would buy 10, 20 albums at a time because I wanted to hear everything. So, um, so I didn't have a really great experience with uh, records. But remember, there were a lot of variety shows when I grew up. So I knew all about these shows and all the songs and all the stars because they were on Perry Como and all these other variety shows. Did your parents ever try to stop you from buying so many? They did not. And I'm really, I have to give thanks to my mother because when I bought a record, I would play it 
over and over, like, you know, 50 times I would play it until I had it memorized. And she never said, you're going to listen to that again? She really put up with me. So I'm grateful for that. All right, let's now move to the beginning of your career in theater, which was founding ASTA or later the new- ASTA, yeah, the ASTA Theater. The ASTA Theater and the, or the new Playwrights Theater of Washington. So how did you sort of get the idea to start a theater? Who were your co? So um, I was uh, a painting major in college. And I decided to be a painting major because I knew I would do theater on my own. And I was good at painting. So, but I spent all my time at the theater department. And a bunch of us from the theater department, including Harry Bagdashian, who I had known since first grade, he and I and some other people decided to start a theater. This was in the sort of mid 70s. And it was easier then to do it because it didn't cost a lot, you know. And so we started a theater called the American Society for Theater Arts, which Richard Coe of the Washington Post thought was a little pretentious, and it was. And we had a puppet company, a classical theater company, a new plays company, and I did a musical company. So we had four different artistic directors. And at that time, downtown Washington was not in good shape. And so the, the government was giving away spaces for anybody who wanted it. So we had an old restaurant, it was the Beef Eaters restaurant, and they let us have that. And we had about 100 seats in it. And so I did a Cole Porter review. I knew I got to meet um, the Cole Porter estate and they let me do whatever I wanted to do. And we did a Jerome Kern review and they were very successful. And the other projects were mildly successful, but as in any theater company where there's four, four bosses, we all didn't get along all the time. So Harry and I split off and started the New Playwrights Theater of Washington. And we found a basement under, in a house underneath a head shop that sold all marijuana stuff and I don't know what else, anyway. We had uh, 24 seats. It was literally in a basement of what was originally a home. And if actors had to make an entrance, they had to wait through the show in a closet until their cue came and then come out of the closet, so to speak. But uh, it was all new plays, <clears throat> excuse me, and my musicals. And we got fantastic reviews in the Washington Post and other places. And then later, we moved to a much larger space. Um, it was an old girls' school gymnasium uh, in DuPont Circle. And we set it up so we could configure it any way we wanted. So we could do in the round, proscenium, whatever. And I did a Harold Arlen show called Sweet and Hot in conjunction with Ed Jablonski, who was Arlen's biographer and the Gershwin biographer. And again, they gave us access to all the songs and it was a big hit, it ran through the summer. And we brought it up to New York, to the Museum of the City of New York. And we did it there and Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg were in the audience, which was really nice. But mainly what I did at New Playwrights was original musicals, mostly written by this guy, Tim Grunman. And they were really funny and really quirky. 
and extremely successful. We had um, professional runs after the nonprofit run in, in for two of the shows. So they're very successful shows. And then uh, in, I think, 1979, a friend of mine, Karen Brooks Hopkins, who was our fundraising person at New Playwrights, she and I decided to move to New York. Well, and Karen went to, went to BAM uh, in, and worked her way up to be president of BAM. So she became very successful. Tell us about some of the reviews you had a chance to direct at ASTA. Did you try to put together reviews with narratives or was there a different idea behind them? No, they were, they were just uh, song reviews. Um, the, but um, we sort of copied Ben Bagley and we called it the unsung Cole Porter and the unsung Jerome Kern. And those were songs that had never been really heard since forever. No one knew these songs. We had no songs that people in the audience would ever have heard before. And the Jerome Kern actually was broadcast on a Pennsylvania public TV station, which I thought was pretty strange. And then I did a show called Sweet and Hot, a Harold Darlin show at New Playwrights. And uh, that we had a mix of famous songs and songs that were not famous. Tell us about how you got access to the rare songs by these famous composers. Well, you know, in, in the mid-70s, toward the late 70s, as you know, rock and roll had taken over. And people like Harold Arlen and Yip uh, Harburg and all these other people felt they had been forgotten because rock and roll was taking over. And when I met Burton Lane and when I met Harold Arlen, they would say, this rock and roll, you know, those kids. And they really felt threatened. And so the estates were really happy to let people do these songs because they thought they were keeping them alive, which they were. And especially young people who were interested in doing these songs. So the estates were fantastic. The Jerome Kern estate said, just tell us what sheets you want and we'll send them to you. It was Dean Kay was in charge and we asked for like hundreds and hundreds of pieces of sheets to go through and they didn't blink. So that was great. So I'm sure that my listeners and also I will be curious to know about some of the musicals that you had a chance to direct at the New Playwrights Theater of Washington. All and right, so the big hit musical was called Nightmare. These were very wacky musicals, I would say. Uh, and um, so in the, the plot of Nightmare, was this you know all-american boy and girl he was a jock and she was the perfect girl with a poodle skirt and uh, he had an italian mother and these gypsies come to town and the mother insults them somehow and the gypsies put a curse on the boy and he gets infatuated infatuated with wearing women's clothes he he's not gay but he's going to wear women's clothes and it's all about him and the gypsies and trying to get the curse lifted. And it was really crazy. And uh, we played it twice. It was so successful, it played a whole summer. And then we brought it back the next summer. And then we transferred it for a commercial run in Washington. And 
there was a show called Out to Lunch, which I couldn't tell you the plot of because it was so nuts. Uh, and another one called Eddie's Catchy Tunes. These were all big, big successes. And so Richard Coe came and saw our show, Bride of Sirocco. And the next day in the Washington Post, it said, not Sue Rodhart as the theater scene, uh, a greater debut of a talent than Tim Grunman and Ken Bloom's uh, show at New Playwrights Theater, which was astounding at the time that the Washington Post took us seriously, as seriously as it took Arena Stage and Folger and the other big established theater. Said, Karen and I decided to move to New York, which I did. And then I got a call from the Washington Post. They wanted to do a quarterly uh, arts magazine as a supplement for their Sunday section, which would mainly be to get more advertising. And for some reason, they hired me as the editor. And, I, and so I had to go, then I had to go back to Washington four times a year to edit the magazine and work with the designers and all. So luckily, a friend of mine from the theater took over my apartment so I could stay in my apartment, you know, while I was in DC and I slept on a mattress on the floor of my apartment because he had the bed, of course. So that lasted two years, the Washington season. And, and it was great, you know, we had, and we did arts of all the theaters, all the art galleries, dance companies, everything. And I thought of a photo for the cover of one where I got oh, about a hundred people who were the leading arts people in Washington to be on the cover of the photo. And the photographer was Joan Marcus, who you may know is the leading Broadway photographer right now. And she had come to me a few years earlier and asked if we needed a theater photographer, new playwrights, and we already had one. So I referred her to the Folger, and she did her first theater photography at the Folger. So I know, knew Joan very well, and I hired her to do the cover of the magazine. And so coincidentally, she married Adrian Brian Brown, who was also a friend of mine. What were some of the theater columns and contributors you had the chance to edit? Uh, well, the main one, I think, well, I had people like Zelda Fitzhandler from the Arena Stage would write something, some of the artistic directors. But um, Hap Erstein, who was a critic for the Washington Times and then moved down to the Palm Beach Post, and he was a friend of mine from high school. He wrote some pieces, and you know, others of my friends who were writers wrote pieces. And because you had that job, did you try to stay with the Washington theater scene and see a lot of shows while you were there? Uh, yeah, when I was in town, I would see everything because I knew uh, Max Woodward, who was the, um, the manager of the uh, Eisenhower Theater at the Kennedy Center. And I knew people at Ford's Theater. We would rehearse our shows at the Kennedy Center or at Ford's Theater because we knew these people and we didn't have a rehearsal room with new playwrights. So the Washington theater community was really strong and Maury Collins, who worked at Ford's Theater and I, had a plan to merge all of the mailing lists of every theater in Washington into one mailing list. Which we called the Washington Arts List Co-op. And anybody could use that mailing list for any of their mailings as long as the those names had not been used in a six-week period. So people didn't get tons and tons of mail. 
So when I did a subscription pro brochure, because I also did publicity for and marketing for new playwrights, of course, um, I could use Arena Stage's mailing list for my subscription campaign, and they could use ours, and we could do it by zip code, and it was fantastic. And I don't know if it still exists. I don't think so. But the small theaters were really united with the large theaters, and we all, we all took ourselves sort of seriously together. So another job you had and had for 15 years was being the co-host of Musical Theater Today on WKCR-FM. How did you get that job and how did you meet Ezio Peterson? I don't remember how I met Ezio. It's a funny thing. I guess I knew of him through the radio show and we got to be friends. And so I would do the show and Ezio had already done it 10 or 15 years before I did it. It was two and a half hours every Sunday. And so when now, so I did the show with Betsio and I had a lot of stuff that, you know, I could play also for my collection. And um, so I would take over and be a host when he took off. And, you know, we had to have a student intern from Columbia. That was one of the deals of being able to use Columbia's radio station. So one of our interns was Michael Riedel. And at the time, Michael knew nothing about theater, but he was really interested in it, and he was really smart. And we would tease him incessantly, which was a lot of fun. But, uh, and of course, we all know Michael went on to write fantastic books and has a new fantastic book coming out soon. Uh, and, you know, his, his uh, New York Post articles, he really blossomed. So I did that radio show with him. And of course, you know, we didn't get paid for it. And I know that as part of that show, you would sometimes do interviews, is that right? Right. Uh, never in the studio, but I would go out with a tape recorder and do interviews with people. And it was great because then Etsy and I would get invited to openings of shows or you know, critics' performances and all. So that was great too. And I met a lot of people. Uh, and even when I was, when I was in, oh, when I was in Washington also, I forgot, I had a radio show on WAMU, the American University, a musical theater show. And so I interviewed a lot of the people coming in to uh, Washington also from the theater. I remember I interviewed Harold Rome, who was one of the people, and so I got to know him pretty well. And I, when I came, would come to New York, I would go visit him at his studio uh, on Green Street, his painting studio. Because as I said, all these people really liked that younger people in their early 20s knew who they were and knew all about their shows and could talk to them because they really felt they had been forgotten by you know, the younger generation. Like podcasts, radio is not a visual medium, but I know you have some stories about stars who behaved weirdly in the taping. <laughs> I do. Well, the main one, which I know I told you, was Louise Lasser. And uh, I forget what, it was probably a Woody Allen movie, I guess, that I was interviewing her for. So she came into the studio and from her bag, she brought out like eight cans of soda and opened each of the cans of soda and put a straw in each can. And during the interviews, she would take a sip out of different sodas at a different time. And it was like a seal playing the horns. She would go from one to another, but she was a great interview, but it was a little quirky. 
And uh, the worst interview I had was uh, NPR asked me to do a story on Marian Anderson and her historic con con um, concert and her dealings with the Amer uh, Metropolitan Opera. So I called the Metropolitan Opera and I got the head of publicity and he said, oh, I'll come and do the story. So I had this guy into the studio and I would ask him a question like, well, how was it having the first black performer, you know, to sing at the Met and how did the company relate to that and how did the public relate? And all he said, we are colorblind at the Metropolitan Opera, which of course didn't answer my question. And I kept asking him to elaborate with other questions and he wouldn't do it. He would just do the party line. And I remember looking through the glass into the control room and the head of uh, NPR, you know, in, in New York was like, cut, cut, don't even bother. So I didn't, he was the worst because he wouldn't answer question. He just wanted to say the party line. He had nothing to say. And that, that was the worst interview I gave. What's the strangest circumstance under which you've ever interviewed a star? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I would uh, interview a lot of stars backstage, like between matinees and evenings, and we'd be constantly interrupted. And for example, I interviewed Joey Bishop, who was a, one of the people I interviewed was Joey Bishop, who was a big star, and he was appearing in Sugar Babies. But he was so nervous about doing an interview for some reason, because I guess he didn't know me. So he had Joey Fay, who was the second banana in Sugar Babies, be at the interview, and they started talking, and I figured, well, I'll just be quiet. And so, uh, and that's happened a couple of times where people have, they have something to say, and they were gonna say it no matter what. So I would just sit back and let them talk, and you know, tell stories, and, and it was fine, it was great. And then the Canadian broadcast, I was referred to the Canadian broadcasting and they would take my interviews and take me out of the interviews and broadcast them on uh, Canadian radio also. So I was uh, heard in most of North America minus Mexico, but my voice wasn't heard in Canada. And I don't think they credited me in the interviews either, but I didn't care. Who were some of the stars who were the most difficult to interview or refused to be interviewed? And conversely, who were some of the nicest and the people who had the most to say? One of the, one of the ones that was most uncomfortable was, was a was musical the, Copperfield, which was a David Copperfield musical. And Brian Matthews, who played Copperfield, I had him set to do an interview and he came in and he was practically crying through the whole interview because he didn't understand how the show had closed. Because, you know, you're in a show, you don't see it. And you really, you know, have a connection to it. And a lot of people don't know if their shows are good or bad. Uh, and so most of the interview was like consoling him and talking about how the show closed, which made for an in interesting interview, actually. You know, so those were the two that were the most uncomfortable ones. Another thing you've done that I find very interesting is you've cataloged a lot of people's papers for the Library of Congress, among them Jerry Herman, Peter Stone, and Florence Klotz. So when you first get a big sheaf of someone's papers, where do you start in organizing them? The first one I did was for the Museum of the City of New York was 
Howard Dietz's papers. And uh, I knew Howard Dietz really well for some reason. I can't remember how I met him, but I knew him really, really well. And his wife, Lucinda Ballard, who I'll tell you about both of them in a second. But I knew Mary Henderson from the Museum of the City of New York because we had done this sweet and hot show at the Museum of the City of New York. So um, Howard had given his papers to the museum years before, and they'd never done anything with them. So actually, Lucinda Ballard and Howard Dietz paid me to put the papers together and sort of organize them. And I went there and uh, to the offices at the museum, to the theater department, and I looked up, and there was a box that said Sophie Tucker. And I said, what's Sophie Tucker? And they said, oh, those are her papers. But we've never had the money to incorporate them into the collection. So for like 20 years, they sat up in a box on there. I said, she could have been eating a ham sandwich and it could still be in the box. You know, it's Sophie Tucker. But, uh, so that's the first one I did. And then, you know, once you've done one, other people hear about it. Uh, so I've done, you know, big people, small people. I did Jerry Herman's for the Library of Congress um, because I had done a book with Jerry, which was going to be the complete lyrics of Jerry Herman, but Jerry didn't want all his lyrics done. I then dubbed the book the incomplete lyrics of Jerry Herman, but, that's, but we uh, called it Jerry Herman and the Lyrics. And uh, so I actually stayed in Jerry's guest house across from the main house. It was uh, across from a big driveway. Jerry would come over and I'd be doing stuff and he would just, he would just come over and play the piano. And it was fantastic. And sometimes I didn't see him for the rest of the day because I'd never just go into Jerry's house because I knew he was very private. But we had a really good relationship and Jerry didn't throw anything out. I mean, he kept everything. E even shows like, I think it was his show Parade, you know, from off-Broadway before he hit Broadway, he tore everything from the, from the um, showcases outside the theater with glue on their back. He, he pulled everything off. He saved everything, which was so great. Because when I did, I did Howard Deeps's piece, I said, well, where are the scripts? You don't have any scripts, you know, and where's the music? He didn't have any music. And he said an interesting thing. He said, well, when shows closed on Broadway, maybe they had a tour, but there were no revivals. And so he said, so we moved on to the next show and we didn't collect the old shows because there was nothing, no value in them, we thought. And Howard, did, Howard you know, also worked for MGM as head of publicity. He's the one who created Leo the Lion because he had gone to Columbia University and the lion was the mascot of Columbia University. That's how Leo the Lion. And, and so Howard knew a lot of stuff about that. So he didn't always think of Broadway as his first career, you know? Uh, and, and he was really, really a great person. And he liked me, again, because I was young. And, but I knew the stuff. So he could tell me all the stories about B. Lilly and, you know, all, all those kind of things. And Lucinda Ballard liked me because I kept Howard busy and she didn't have to. 
And Lucinda, who was one of the greatest costume designers in Broadway history, who at one point had won more Tony Awards than any other person until Michael Bennett. Because in the early years, you could win a Tony Award for more than one show in a season. Uh, but she was a very Southern aristocratic woman, sort of. And she would spend her whole time in bed, in her bedroom. And, you know, I, I wouldn't see her sometimes, you know, uh, and I would be talking to Howard. And one time, I have a Howard deep story, one time, Howard and I went to see a show called American Jubilee, which was at the St. James Theater. It was a review with John Raitt and Lillian Gish, believe it or not, and Patrice Munsell, Cyril Richard. And so they got tickets because Dancing in the Dark was in the show. And Lucinda said, here, you take Howard. We got, you know, she got us a car to drive us. And in the car, Howard said to me, do you have children? And I said, no, I'm not married. He said, you don't have to be married to have children. So then we went to the theater and we were sitting in great seats, like F two and four off the aisle in the orchestra. And the song Dancing in the Dark starts and Howard starts singing along with it. And everybody around us in the audience was looking at us like, who is this old man and why is he singing? And we're trying to listen to whomever was on the stage. And I kept saying, he wrote the song, he wrote the song. And then um, after the show, I, he wanted to go backstage. I took him backstage and Lillian Gish came over and said, you got to get this man a chair to sit in because Howard had Parkinson's disease and very badly, I might add. So she got him a chair and every cast member came over and paid their respects to him. So it was a really good experience for him to be acknowledged by all these performers. So that was really great. So tell us about some of the most interesting artifacts you found while going through these papers, cut songs, rare letters. Oh yeah, a lot of cut songs uh, from shows and, and, and a lot of songs from shows that were never produced and scripts of songs. And I, I, I copied a lot of them, but there was so, there was so much material in, you know, in these collections, some were huge. And so I just didn't have time to collect everything, but it's all there and it's all cataloged now, which is the good news. And the Library of Congress was great because they didn't have the manpower to do it. The estates paid me. And then I would assign numbers that uh, were the same as the Library of Congress numbers, let's say, or the Museum of City of New York's numbers. And that way they could go into the collection immediately with just a little bit of massaging. So that was really good. And I got, and most of the people were alive, so I got to meet most of them. And that was really great. Were there ever any, like one or two documents that particularly amazed I you? Can't, I can't think of one. But of course, it was a long time ago. So I'll have to think. If I put it in the back of my head, maybe later I'll pop up and tell you something. So tell us about consulting for Deca Broadway. So um, Deca Broadway was created when Universal Music bought the Deca catalog. And they decided they wanted to do a blog, just the same as Peter Felicia's for Masterworks. And I was recommended by Adrian Brian Brown. And I think for two or three years, I did a weekly column on the DECA releases. And, you know, DECA had a fantastic catalog. 
because they had, you know, Oklahoma, Man of La Mancha, they owned Cap Records. And I would interview people or I would do pieces that sort of just made up pieces like, uh, like Peter does, you know, taking an idea or a concept. It's hard to do every week, uh, you know, an article on a specific show. But so I did that for two years till when I started there in the Broadway uh, division, I think there were nine people. When I left two years later, there were three, including me. You know, it, you know, there was cost cutting, cost cutting. People were fired. We don't need this. We don't need that. You know, so it sort of petered out. So I sort of petered out with it. They just kept cutting back the staff. Did you ever get to discover any CDs that you hadn't known about through doing that, or did you already know about? I didn't discover CDs, but they would send me to LA or to New Jersey to the archives. And I would go through all the master recordings and I sometimes would find songs that were cut or were abbreviated for the record and on CDs we could make them longer. So if you get the Man of La Mancha CD, there's two minor pieces that are in it because I found them uh, in uh, the Universal lot. And I also uh, pulled out a lot of tapes and acetates and stuff for possible other DECA issues like Down in the Valley with uh, Burl Ives. And I would make copies and now I have great copies of all those shows that, that have never been issued on CD. One thing I feel I would be remiss if I didn't mention about you is that in the basement of your apartment, you have a large archival collection of theater-related books and CDs. So I do. first I'll ask you, how have you amassed such a large collection? Uh, because, I, uh, because I guess I've, I'm obsessive. I didn't realize I was, but I am. And um, so I have a lot of books, uh, mainly on theater, some movies and, so, and a lot on theater architecture. Because um, I worked with the Theater Historical Society and for, I don't know, five or six years, I did their magazine called Marquee Magazine. So I have a lot of stuff on theater. It's just, you know, and I think I have to say, I'm not a collector just to collect. I collect because number one, I love the material. Number two, I actually have read, I'd say 80% of the books and I probably listened to 90% of the CDs I have. And because I have my own library downstairs, when I write a book, I can go downstairs and look it up. I don't have to go to the real library to look it up, you know? So, so that's, you know, the problem is now I'm running out of space. And uh, I can tell you that because I did Ezio's radio show when Ezio passed away, he gave me all the interview tapes that he had done over 20 years. Plus I had all my NPR interview tapes. Plus I had tapes that I copied from estates I did. And so I'm now finally digitizing them uh, since we're in this you know, sort of semi-lockdown. I've done 500 and I have 2,000 more to go. But I'm trying to save them all. And the tapes have fantastic people. Rogers, Lynn Lesser, uh, all, you know, a lot of Yip Harburg, a lot of Burton Lane, you know, all these people. And 
people from shows, I mean, you name it, they're on these tapes. So I'm cataloging them. I'm thinking about doing my own podcast with them. But right now I want to catalog and make sure they're all off the cassettes. But this, the cassettes have lasted. They've been pretty good. The podcast is a great idea. And if and when you do it, I'll make sure to refer everyone who listens to this podcast. Oh, good. We can do a cross uh, promotion. Um, and as a collector and a theater lover, what are some of the pieces you're proudest to have as part of your collection? I have a very big poster collection, of course, uh, really big. And um, I was lucky enough, if I did an estate and they had three copies of a poster, like Jerry, Jerry sometimes did, but some others did, I could always take one home because the Library of Congress didn't want two or three or Lincoln Center, you know. And I also have a lot of awards because uh, Lincoln Center and the Library of Congress do not want three-dimensional objects. They want up because the only use for them is if they do an exhibit. And they're hard to, um, they're hard to store because they're not flat like paper is. And so when I do these, I keep the awards. And I have a lot of awards, a lot from Jerry, Florence Klotz, all these people, because I can't throw them out, yeah. you know? And where are they going to go? I don't know where they're gonna go, but I have a lot. And I have a lot of posters, as you know, and uh, I have a lot of 19th century posters, coincidentally. I'll tell you a story about that. I was asked to do uh, an article on posters for a magazine. I wanted some information on posters and people said, this is a long time ago. People said, oh, go to the internet because you can find anything at the internet, in the internet, which of course wasn't true then and actually isn't true now. You know, and you can find a lot, but there's a lot that's still not on it. But I found a posting by someone uh, in Minnesota that said, we have a bunch of theater posters and we'd like to give them a good home. So I called Peter Felicia up and I said, come on, we're going to Minnesota. And we went to these people's house and they came back with a roll of posters, a big roll of posters. And they couldn't unroll them because the posters were so old, they had dried out. So I bought them sight unseen. I took them home. I had them put on linen. And these posters are fantastic of great stars of the 19th century. And the story was this woman's father owned a music store in Louisville, Kentucky, down the street from a theater. And the theater would say, can we put your, our posters up in your window? And he'd say, yeah, if I can keep the poster after the show leaves. And he kept them and he kept them all rolled up and you know they dried out, they would have cracked, but I put them all on linen. And there are you know a lot of great posters down there. Our listeners, so, yeah. our listeners can't see, but behind you, I think, is a Chauncey Oldcott poster. Tell us. Yeah, Chauncey Oldcott. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so if you come to my apartment, the walls are filled with posters. I have a lot of three. Uh, luckily, I have high ceilings, and I have a lot of three sheets. But uh, I always feel it's not, I don't know, why have all these posters if you can't look at them? Just to have them in drawers. So I rotate my posters. And every four to five months, everything comes down and new stuff comes up. So, so I can enjoy them and live with them. 
So right now I have a poster of the shop girl up. I have a three sheet of Fanny. I have a three sheet of it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. And in front of it is a mobile of Superman and the album cover of the cast album and two other things floating around. Uh, I have a poster of a show called Sinbad from London. I have a poster of uh, a three sheet of Come Summer, a three sheet of Edwin Drood, and a three sheet of The Girl from Utah, which is pretty amazing, which I found out. I was uh, involved with the uh, National Music Publishers Association, and with a friend, I would go to their conferences. And I was in Singapore, believe it or not, and met this woman who lived in uh, Pennsylvania, whose husband, I think, was head of Paramount Music. And she was a poster dealer. And I said, do you have any interesting posters? Any theater posters? And she said, I don't know. I have some poster with Julia Sanderson. And I immediately thought it was the girl from Utah. And indeed it was. And she, didn't, she knew nothing about the girl from Utah, Julia Sanderson, or anything. She was just a dealer. So I, now, I have that poster, which... It's really a nice poster, really nice. Let's talk about your experience at Harbinger Records. I know you have a lot of stories about that, but first tell us how you came to yeah. do it. Okay, so Bill Rudman, who was my partner in Harbinger Records, uh, he was working at the, he, he was first working at Susan Block and Company, which was a PR firm in the village. And I met him there. Oh, no, actually, I met him before that. While I was at New Playwrights, there was an organization called FEDAP, the Foundation for the Extension and Development of the American Professional Theater. And one of the people running it was Joe Malillo, who then became, um, I guess, artistic director or whatever, executive director of BAM. And they had a retreat at the O'Neill Center of the top, uh, people of these new theaters like new playwrights that were popping up who did publicity or marketing and I was one of them. So I went there to the O'Neill and I was sitting on a bus and someone in the front of the bus started sing, uh, whistling Happy Hunting Horn and he stopped in the middle of the song and I whistled the end of it. And, and that's where Harbinger Record was actually thought up because we were talking about all these great recordings that, you know, no, no one ever, you know, issued and that we should have our own record company. So knowing nothing about having a record company, we started Harbinger Records there. And, um, oh, oh, so, so uh, Bill was working at the Great Lakes Theater Festival at the time. And he, he had, um, Geraldine Fitzgerald do a show there called Street Songs, which was a really great one-woman show about Irish songs and stuff, and Geraldine was fantastic. And he said, I have a recording of Street Songs, and that could be our first album. So I said, great. So we got Ben Bagley's company, Painted Smiles, to, um, we, we pressed the CD, the, uh, I'm sorry, LPs ourselves, and Ben distributed them. But when we went into the studio to transfer this cassette that Bill had made of Geraldine's performance, we discovered the tape had twisted and the cassette 
was recorded on the wrong side of the tape. But miraculously, it sounded okay. And now, over 50 years later, we just reissued that recording on Harbinger Records. Uh, and Geraldine is, she was so wonderful. But uh, this was in the mid 70s. And her husband kept saying, uh, I don't know, you're not in so-and-so record company, uh, record store, you're not in this record store. And we were like, those are rock record stores. We're never going to be in the rock stores, you know? Uh, but actually, those were the days where the New York Times actually cared about recordings. John C. Wilson was a critic, a music critic, and he also did recording reviews. And we put this recording out, and on the Sunday paper, in the arts and leisure section, right below the fold was a quarter page review of this album. So Bill and I thought, well, it's easy. You know, you're gonna get the New York Times to review all your CDs. Then the next CD we did, we said, um, because we knew Harold Arlen, we said, uh, let's do a, a Cotton Club album. And what we would do when we would do an album and decide who we wanted to sing it, we'd go to Tower Records and go through the vocal section until we found someone. And we found a recording by Maxine Sullivan who had actually appeared in the Cotton Club's last show. And so we called Maxine up and we said, uh, she was living up in the South Bronx and we said, Maxine, we want you to do an album of the Cotton Club. And she said, okay. She knew nothing about us. We had no track record doing live recording at all. And we did the recording, our first live recording, and we got a Grammy nomination for uh, best vocal album female, I guess. And so of course we thought, well, it's so easy. We had a big successful LP, got great reviews. We got a Grammy nomination on our first album. It's so great, so easy to be in the uh, record uh, field and that was our last Grammy nomination for over 40 years but you know what are you gonna do but you know we sort of learned as we went along and we had a lot of people who helped us and we had a lot of distributors who cheated us out of a lot of money a lot of distributors who cheated us out of a lot of money so Bill and I put our own money and we never made money on the label because either the, the distributor didn't pay us or you know it's a niche market the way that some of these record companies now operate are astounding to me because you don't sell a lot of CDs unless you have a Broadway CD or, I don't know, something known by somebody. So what are some of the releases over the years that you've been proudest to get for your record company? So we did three Maxine Sullivan albums. We did a Cotton Club. We did a Burton Lane. Uh, we, oh, I guess that's how I met Burton. And uh, we did a Julie Stein album, which Julie was very involved with, very. And I remember we were going down to the recording studio. We got a town car to pick up Julie at his house so he wouldn't have to you know, get a car of his own. And in the town car, he, he announced to us, I am the greatest living American living composer. And you know what? I think he was right. Because people like Rogers and Gershwin and all had died. And considering the other people who, you know, great people like Charles Strauss and, you know, John Kander and all. Well, we thought about Julie 
having written all those songs for the movies, fantastically successful Broadway shows like Gypsy, and uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber was just coming in, and we thought, you know, you're right, you are the greatest living composer. Uh, and Julie was really great. He, we went up to his offices, which were above the Mark Hellinger Theater, and he played all these songs for us, for, for Maxine, some of which were completely not good for Maxine, let's say. They were good for Frank Sinatra. But he was a real song plugger, you know. And Julie, there wasn't a lot to do in the office. And he had an assistant, Dorothy. And they would play, while, when they were bored, during the day they would play Yahtzee, which is a dice game. Uh, and uh, Julie would take out his teeth and put them on the table next to the board and they would play Yahtzee. You know, these people like Julie Stein and you know, the older guys were real, uh, Alan J. Lerner, they were real characters. They, you know, they were really crazy in a way, which probably made them more, more uh, artistic, inventive and all. The younger people, just nice younger people, but they don't have that quirky thing that I think adds so much to the way you think and therefore the way your art comes out. So let's talk about a different part of your career now, which is your many books about theater that mm -hmm. you've written. So you've written a number of books that are sort of encyclopedias right. of song of Broadway. What is your first step when you set out okay. to write? So this was really weird. So when I was at NPR, a guy named James Monaco did uh, movie reviews. He had he had written a very well-known book called How to Read a Film, and a lot of universities picked it up. And he had his own publishing company, okay? So I, so I said to him, oh, I want to write a book that's sort of like um, the book that Richard Lewin and Al Simon wrote of songs written for the theater, but it wasn't very complete. And so I went to Richard Lewin, who I knew, I knew, and I knew Al Simon through friends in Washington. Uh, Richard Lewin was uh, running the Rogers and Hammerstein office at the time. And I said, look, I want to do an update of your book. And they said, great. So uh, do the book and we'll take two thirds and you can have a third. And that was the end of me talking to Richard Lewin. But I talked Jim Monaco into publishing this book and it was called American Song. And every day, literally every day, I would go to the library at Lincoln Center. This is before computers, Charles, uh, with three by five cards. And I said to the librarians at the theater collection, I want to see every playbill in the collection. I don't want to sit here and hand in slips and get a few playbills and hand in slips. So to my amazement, they said, okay. And they would come with a grocery cart, literally filled with playbills. And I went through all the playbills of all these shows. So I got the out of town playbills. I got the opening night. I got later playbills. And I did this every day but Sunday because they were open six days a week. And I remember one day, uh, oh, what I would do is I'd go there from, noon to six when they closed. And at six, I'd go downtown 
to the offices of the publisher where they'd have these computers and I would type in all the stuff from the three by five cards. And at midnight, when they closed the building, I would walk across the village and take a bus home. And I did this every day, six days a week. And one day the computers were down. So after the library, I was walking around the Upper West Side and I met a friend. She said, well, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. It's the first time I've been free to do anything in weeks. I'm just sort of walking around, stumbling around. I don't know what to do with myself. So anyway, I, I did that book called American Song and it was published and I got no advance for that song because the deal was I would get money on the back end and the, song, and the books were, it was a two volume set and the books were extremely successful and I made a total of zero dollars on them. He kept all the money and I tried to get lawyers and I was wasting too much money on lawyers and he wasn't going to do anything. And then um, I had written a book with facts on file, a Broadway encyclopedia. And I said, I want to do an update. You know, it was like 10 years later or something on American Song. And they said, okay. And Jim wouldn't give me the rights back. So finally, after like six months, he gave me the rights back. But what are you going to do? So I did an update on that book, which is even gigantier. Another book you wrote was a book of love letters between Jerry and Elaine Orbach. Did right. they come to you? Did you go to them? And also, how much access did they give you? Okay, so I knew Jerry Orbach because I had done, uh, with Barry Kleinbord, I did a big gala entertainment at Brooklyn Academy of Music for their annual gala. And it was, a Kurt, it was Kurt Vile's 100th anniversary, I guess, centennial. And so we did a big all-star thing. Annette Fabre came in and we had young people, some younger performers. Anyway, Dick Van Patten was there because he was in an early Kurt Vile show. And Jerry Orbach was the MC, and he was fantastic. You know, and he had gotten his start sort of with the Three Penny Opera off-Broadway. So I got to know Jerry Orbach. And later, I was hired to do another benefit, uh, and I brought Barry along also for New York City Opera, which was called Divas Get Down, which was uh, uh, New York City opera stars singing pop songs, okay? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I called Jerry Orbach up, and I said, do you want to be an MC for that? And he said, yeah, but I'm doing Law and Order. And I don't know if I'm going to make it in time, but I'll really try to make it in time. So, um, so we were like, okay, and we had somebody, the pianist, ready to, to go on stage just in case Jerry didn't show up. And uh, this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but, um, and it was eight o'clock and we were ready to start and Jerry came in the lobby doors, took off his coat, handed it to me, walked down the aisle, onto the stage and started the show with no rehearsal, no nothing. So I became, you know, sort of friendly with him. I mean, I, I knew him. Uh, and when he died, I was invited to the memorial service. And at the memorial service, his, his wife, Elaine, uh, read a poem. Every day when Jerry would leave 
to go to Law and Order. He would have breakfast at five o'clock in the morning and Elaine would still be asleep. And every morning when he had breakfast, he would write Elaine a poem, a funny poem, a love poem, an observational poem, just every morning a poem. So when she came in, after he had left for work, she would find a poem on the kitchen table. So she read one and I went, boing. So I called Elaine and I said, I want to do a book of these poems because they were, they're so great. Uh, and so I, I would go to her house every day and go through all the poems with her. The, the tragic part is that Elaine died from an illness she got on a cruise ship before the book came out. So she never saw the book. But I loved doing that book because it was so heartfelt and so funny and really an emotional book. You've done several books of lyrics, including, I guess, as you call it, the incomplete lyrics of Jerry Herman, and now you're working on Sheldon Harnick. Complete Sheldon, right. I contacted Jerry uh, because I wanted to do a complete lyrics book, and he didn't want a complete lyrics book. I think one of the reasons was um, he didn't always like some of his early lyrics, you know? So I understood. So... I, I did a, a book with a lot of photos of Jerry and a lot of lyrics. And it, it was a very successful book. And then Jerry hired me because we really hit it off. He hired me to do his papers for the Library of Congress. And as I said, I lived across the street, so to speak, from Jerry. So we knew each other pretty well. Uh, so that's how we did the Jerry book. And now Sheldon's book which has sort of been held up by the virus because Sheldon is 96 and I can't go to the house to get more stuff. I'm about 95% through with the book, which is frustrating. But there's, there's over a thousand lyrics. And I also have Sheldon's comments on a lot of songs, their history or how he wrote them or what happened. So I can't wait to get this book out, but we'll see what happens. So about those two questions, how closely do you have to work with the lyricists? And also, how long does it usually take you to get every single thing? Well, I was lucky with Sheldon because Sheldon has kept every lyric, and I mean every lyric, in a notebook or in a folder all the way back to his early shows, which he did for Northwestern University for the WAMU shows. He wrote for them and he has the programs, he has every lyric in its original form. And a lot of the show, a lot of the folders have his scribblings where he was trying to figure out lyrics and all, it's really interesting stuff. Um, and then to fill in some blanks, I looked at some scripts and I talked to people in the shows and all, but. 99% of the lyrics came from Sheldon himself. And to take the example of Fiddler on the Roof, he would have all the cut songs, all the songs that may have been adapted through the run of the show. Like, and, you know, Theodore Bikel did an album of Fiddler on the Roof. He wanted some changes done in the lyrics, so Sheldon wrote down these changes. And um, Josh Ellis, who's a friend of ours, who's a publicity guy, he was, he's a certified minister, I don't know if that's the right term, but he can do marriages, and he was, do, he was doing uh, a gay marriage, marrying these two gay men, and he asked 
uh, Sheldon to do a special lyric to Sunrise Sunset for a gay couple, and Sheldon did that, and he has those lyrics in his book. I mean, he has everything. There's very little that he doesn't have. So I, I lucked out with that. You know, if I had tried to do a Howard Dietz book, Howard had nothing. Like I said, he didn't save anything because he said there was no worth in saving anything. So I was lucky. I, I did go to the library at Lincoln Center, and I went to the Library of Congress a little, but I got very little at either place. So almost all of it is Sheldon. So another book you wrote was a book called The 101 Greatest Shows of All Time with Frank Vlasnik. That must have been a hard list to make. Are there any you especially regret leaving out? Well, luckily, we did a second edition, and we swapped out. We put in Sunday in the Park. I think we put in Lane Miz for the second edition. Um, and Frank and I worked very well on that book together. And um, we both did, to differing degrees, all the writing and all types of photographs. And Lincoln Center came through. And they gave us a conference room and we just ordered tons of photos. And at one point we had three computers going, either scanning photos or slides. And so, and I had a lot of photos from when I did the Jerry Herman book. So, um, so I, we had a lot to choose from. And then we went to Photo Fest, which was a photo house, hold on. <coughs> and Photo Fest, uh, it's a giant photo house, huge. And they got a call one day from the Daily News. And the Daily News said, we're throwing our photo archive away. It's all in a dumpster. If you get here before the garbage men come, you can have all the photos. And they all ran down there in taxis with boxes, and they got thousands of photos. And among them was a lot of color photos for the Sunday Rotogravure magazine. Every Sunday, you know, these newspapers would do a color section. And the Daily News always, almost always, would have a theater photo. Um, the Daily News also had an exhibit of the photos. And uh, Howard sold me the blow-up photos, which I've had framed also. And these are shows from the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. So they're fantastic photos that no one's ever seen before. So a big part of the book where we had over 800 photos, I would say 99% of the photos no one had ever seen before. And that was a big selling point to the book other than our brilliant, brilliant prose. Another book you wrote is called Show and Tell, the Book of Broadway Anecdotes, which just as an aside to our listeners, is I think one of the most funny and interesting books written about theater. So tell us, when you were writing that book, how much of it was interviews, how much of it was memoirs, and how did you fact check? Okay, I did no fact checking, and uh, because these are anecdotes. But um, I always wanted to do this book because as you know, Charles, we have a lot of friends, you know, like Josh Ellis. You know, there's people who know anecdotes and, and they have like one or two you know, that they tell all the time. And then there's people like Josh, who literally have hundreds of anecdotes. It's, it's really interesting. And um, so I always wanted to do this book. And when um, Oxford University Press came to me and said, we'd like to do one of your books, I said, I want to do an anecdote book. So 
I talked to Josh, I talked to Peter Felicia, all these friends of ours, for Annie, uh, Ken Cantor, who's a performer who I know you'll have on the show, who was in a lot of shows, and he's another one who has hundreds of anecdotes of shows he's been in. And then, as you said, I have a big library. You know, I don't know how many books I have, but I probably have a thousand theater books, and I have all these biographies, and it was great. I have a couch there, and all day I would just read all these books again on the couch. It was so great. Because, you know, when I was young and in school, I had time to just sit down and read a book. And now with all the projects, I don't have a lot of time to read books. So it was so pleasurable. And I would put a tab in all the pages that had an anecdote. If you go look at my books now, the tabs are still there. And so I think there's 1,200 anecdotes in the book. And I could have done another 1,200. I'll mention to your listeners that all, all three of the people Ken said he interviewed for this book are going to be future guests on this podcast. Right. And, and maybe more. You never know. But I love, I love that book. I thought, it, I don't know, I just had a better time writing that book. And off what you just said, would you ever consider doing a sequel with the other 1,200 anecdotes? Uh, I would consider it, but, you know, I mentioned how, uh, Howard Mandelbaum, who, who owns PhotoFest, this photo house that really is all entertainment photos. And I'd say 90% of the photos they have are movie photos. And Howard, again, is one of these people who has the kind of a brain that remembers everything about everybody, everything about all these stars. You know, he knows everything. He would be much better at writing the book. I would have to look at books to find them and he could just sit down and write the book. So I, I don't know, I'll probably get Howard involved in some way if I do that book. So one of the many hats you've worn throughout your career is that of a producer. You produced Barry Kleinbord's 13 Things About Ed Carpellati, and for television you produced this PBS three-part miniseries, Michael Feinstein's American Songbook. So there are a lot of myths about what a producer actually does. Um, these two ventures, were you involved more artistically or financially? So Barry Kleinbord had done the show, 13 Things About Ed Carpellati, which is a one-woman musical that featured Penny Fuller. And it's a really great show. And so we decided to do the recording, and we were trying to produce the show in Massachusetts, we did it. The, it was done in Massachusetts. It was done at um, Harbin, the first time it was done, it was at, uh, whatever the name, um, I'll think of it, in New York. And uh, uh, 12 West 20, what's it called? I don't know, it's the address of the theater, I can't remember. So anyway, we did it there, and, and Harbinger Records and I produced it with the with the theater with the theater itself because it was an easy show to do it was one set and one person and one pianist but uh i produced the cd and it's really great uh show a really great show it is i agree and what was the other show I, oh uh michael feinstein the, the michael feinstein show that was really amber edwards it was her documentary and because i knew uh, Michael, and because I had a lot of material, uh, you know, home movies of shows and this and that. So I helped her, and, and she uh, 
I became executive producer because Amber did really most of the producing and directing herself. And I was the major helper because I'm the one who knew Michael. And, and I did a lot of the auxiliary things. I gave, I gave opinions, but I also found a lot of the footage, a lot of the recordings. Uh, I found people to interview. And I, she didn't know a lot about Michael and her history, so I became sort of the historian and to let her know what was available to put in the documentary. You've written and crafted a bunch of shows and reviews. Tell us first about a brief history of white music. What was All that? Right. How did you come up with the idea? I didn't come up with the idea. So what happened is these two people whose names, of course, I don't remember because I never, I don't think I ever met them. They did this show in the village called A Brief History of White Music. And what it was, was white people singing all the songs that black people sang in the 50s. You know, James Brown and, you know, all those people. But it was white people, so that was partially the joke. And um, so I had a friend who, was a, who decided to become a producer. And they, um, with Art DeLugoff from The Village Gate, three people made a partnership. And The Village Gate moved up here to 52nd Street, uh, right by Gallagher Steakhouse. And they were doing this show and in previews, and it was not going well at all. So they hired me, hired me and I brought in Barry Kleinbord, and um, we, com we completely rewrote, rejiggered, redid the show. And it, it was a big hit, except that the three partners, uh, it was Art Lugoff who had the village gate, it was a lawyer, and it was a guy who dealt with the food at the show, and they all had differing opinions of how it should be done. It was one of these too many cooks and too many people who had no, like the lawyer and the um, cook, or the restaurant guy, I should say, didn't, you know, we couldn't rehearse when they were serving lunch and then in between, and it was a big mess, and they, they uh, folded, and the show went on tour and played for a long time on the road. So and it's a really good show. It should be re revived. And Barry and I, of course, don't get any money from it because that's entertainment. So throughout your life, you've had a long and fruitful professional collaboration with Barry Kleinborn. Tell us about how you met and how you worked together so well. Uh, how, you, uh, how we met. I guess we met through Joseph Weiss, who was a really good friend uh, of Barry. Uh, Joseph worked for Eastman and Eastman, which is MPL, which were the publishers of Frank, Frank Music, Frank Lesser's music company. Went into Paul McCartney's company, which is why MPL. And um, so Joseph introduced me to Barry and FCO Peterson, who had the radio show, decided in like 1982 to have a weekly group get together. And Joseph was, was in it, and I was in it. And Joseph brought Barry, and that's where I met Barry. And Barry and I became friends. And as you know, Charles, how many years later, this, this weekly group is still meeting every week since 1982. It's a long time. 
And, uh, you know, the group discusses shows. We would trade CDs or, or videos at the time or DVDs now. And it's just people who are in the business, fans of the business. And it's been a pretty close group for all these years. A lot of the original people are still with it. Tell us about staging a review in France. How does theater work differently there? So, uh, so the first thing that happened is... A note to our listeners, at this point we had a small technical glitch and going forward he refers to Christophe Mirambo. So he must be reincarnated or something because he knows everything. And uh, he got in touch with me because he had heard of me and we became friends and all. And I told him that there was this show that Cole Porter did in France called La Revue des Ambassadeurs that was done in the, at the Ambassador nightclub in France that had never been seen or heard since then. And the music was lost. And if you look at uh, Bob Kimball's complete books of Cole Porter, it says the music is lost and some of the lyrics are lost also. So I told Christophe about it and Christophe, oh, and um, I decided I was going to do a concert version of it here of what existed. So we did a concert here at um, Town Hall. Again, I brought Barry in. And uh, we did a concert and it was extremely successful. We could have run another day, but uh, we sold out and then it was too late to add a performance and it just became a mess. And I said to Christophe, well, you should do it, you know. Um, well, uh, actually, I'm telling you a little wrong. Christophe did it first, and he got Larry Blank to do new arrangements because there were no songs existed, okay? So I, while he did that, I wanted to do it in New York. And I found out that a lot of papers were in uh, Penn State University. And I called them up and they dug through it and they found the original orchestrations of La Review with all the missing lyrics and everything. So I said, oh, well, in New York, we're gonna do the show as done. And I got in touch with Vince Giordano, who has the Nighthawks, which is a fantastic band. And he cleaned up the music and uh, we did the show at, uh, at, the, at, the, um, at the theater town hall here in New York. So that's how I did it. So we discovered a lost Cole Porter show. And, and then I did it once in San Francisco at, in Marin County to a small audience. And then we did it again to a big audience uh, in the Herbst Theater with seats all hundred people. And we sold out in San Francisco. So that was really nice. And the Cole Porter estate were very happy. So for the final part of our interview, let's talk about your Grammy win. So tell us first, what was the album that led to your nomination? Okay, so it was a UB Blake album uh, of the show Shuffle Along. And I'd always been interested in Shuffle Along and all the shows and all. So I had to do uh, a CD of the historic recordings for Harbinger Records, my label, uh, with Bill Rudman. So, I talked to Richard Carlin, who's a musicologist and plays music and writes about music. And he was an editor of mine at uh, several publishers. 
he had done the Jerry Herman Incomplete Lyrics book and a couple of other books with me. And I said to him, let's write the liner notes for this album. And we did all the research for the album and all that. And I was in Paris, actually. In Oh, so first, I'm sorry. First, we, got, we found out we got nominated, which was a complete surprise because usually rock and roll albums or, I don't know, or big box sets get nominated, and some did, but we were nominated. So that was a big surprise because whoever thought of it for this obscure musical at the time? And we were really happy. And then I was in Paris in a taxi cab with some friends, and we realized it was time that the Grammy winners were being announced in L.A. And someone went to the Internet and discovered that we had won, which was astounding that we had won and which apparently pissed off a lot of people in the record industry who had written these giant booklets for these multiple CD sets, you know, of rock things or classical things. So that's how we won a Grammy. That's so it's easy, right? I knew it was easy when we got nominated 40 years before for the Maxine Sullivan album. That's great. So now Richard and I decided so we did these liner notes, it was so easy. Let's do a whole book on UB Blake. So August 10th, we have a big biography. Of, you know, everything sounds easy before you do it. And you're all enthusiastic and you jump in and you do it. And then that's a lot of work, you know? Uh, so we have this UB Blake book coming out August 10th from Oxford University Press. Ken, thank you for talking with us today. You have had a truly awe-inspiring career, and thank you for sharing so many stories with our listeners. Thank and, you for having me. And listeners, don't worry, we'll have Ken back a week from today with Richard Carlin to celebrate the book launch of their new biography, UB Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race. Thank you for tuning in and join us again on Monday when we have Peter Felicia talking to us. Peter has been the MC of the Theatre World Award since 1996. He currently writes weekly columns for Masterworks Broadway and Broadway Select, and you can also find his musings on Critzerland and Theatre Mania. Felicia is the author of several plays, including Adam's Gifts, Games, and God Shows Up, which had a recent off-Broadway run. He is critic emeritus of the Star Ledger and has written a number of theater history books, including Strippers, Showgirls, and Sharks, and The Great Parade, and was a common contributor to Theater Week magazine. Thank you again for tuning in. <laughs>